0: I was at a loss for words. The first church I pastored invited me back to preach a revival. Some years after I'd pastored that church, and I'd preached a few nights at the revival, and one afternoon before the evening services, I was in that area, and I went into a convenience store. And the lady working behind the counter knew me, remembered me from when I pastored there previously. He said, Brother Wade, I heard you're in town for a revival. I said, yes, ma'am, I am. He said, I heard you're a lot better than you used to be. <laughs> what do you say to that? I was at a loss for words. Interestingly enough, we often find ourselves at a loss from wor- for words when it comes to prayer. We know we ought to pray. And we know we ought to pray for others. But when we come into the presence of God, we're not sure what to say. We we get out of our mouths, Lord bless so and so. But after we say that, we don't know what to say next. We find ourselves in the presence of God who invites us to come to him with our request. We find ourselves at a loss for words. So this morning... We're going to have a how-to sermon. We're going to learn from the Apostle Paul how to pray for others. And by extension, how to pray for yourself. What you ought to say when you're praying for other folks. And so, keeping that in mind, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 12 as we continue our study through this wonderful New Testament book. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 9. I want to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, living, active, powerful, inerrant, inspired, infallible, God breathed word. Amen. I'm I'm great. I'm grateful for my Bible. How about you? Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says, For this reason also. Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're so grateful for this opportunity to gather and to fellowship around your word. This opportunity, Lord, to sing praises to your great name, to, Lord, proclaim in song the gospel, and to reflect upon who you are and all that you've done for us we're grateful today for the cross and for the empty tomb we understand that Jesus is our only hope and so we pray that you would work in our midst in such a way as we study your word that Jesus would be lifted up and that we would be encouraged and we would be strengthened and Lord I pray that we would be instructed in this area of prayer Help us to understand, help us to learn how to pray for your honor and your glory. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we began our study of this book called Colossians, we learned that in reality this is a letter, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in first-century Colossae in the area of Asia Minor. Paul wrote this from his uh, Roman prison cell about A.D. 61 or 62, and he had heard from Epaphras, who was the founder of this church, how the church was doing. Epaphras had traveled from Colossae to Rome to report to Paul uh, concerning the condition of this church, and Paul heard some, some good things, and he heard some things that concerned him. So he's writing this letter to them in response to all that he had heard. He begins the letter with a word of greeting. He begins by thanking God for all of the the positive things he heard about this church in Colossae. But in verse 9, he transitions to prayer. He begins to to pray for these believers. And there are some important aspects of this prayer uh, that I want us to learn this morning, us to take hold of so that we can uh, apply them into our own prayer lives. And So there are three aspects of this prayer that I want us to, to see and, and to learn from. Now, it's kind of a quick word. The outline of this sermon is the outline of the text. Verses 9 through 12, really verses 9 through 14 is one long sentence uh, in the Greek language. And so we're going to kind of follow the structure of that sentence, the conjunctions and the, 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 the prepositions and the participles, and we're going to follow his line of thought through this long sentence to understand what he's saying here. So, the structure of the sermon is the structure of the sentence in the Greek text. Just kind of a uh, heads up there. So first of all, the, thir- the first aspect of this prayer that I want us to see is this. I want us to see the intensity of the prayer. The intensity of the prayer. Look what the Bible says there in verse 9. For this reason also. For what reason? In other words, Paul's saying, based on what I just said, what did he just say? He had just thanked God for all the good things he had heard about the church in Colossae. So it's as if Paul is saying... I've heard all these great things. I'm thankful for all these great things. And for this reason, I'm praying for you so that good things will continue to come out of your life, so that, that you'll continue on in this positive direction. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, he heard from a Epaphras a report on this church, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So notice Paul says, as we heard of your spiritual condition, we heard of how you were doing We've not ceased to pray for you. We are praying continually for you. We are praying consistently for you. We are praying for you. The intensity of his prayer. Now, there are different types of prayer. You know this, right? There are prayers of praise and thanksgiving, where you go to God and you just thank him for who he is and what he's done. You, you praise his name for all of his goodness in your life and, and all that he's doing in, in the universe. And it, it's a, a, pray, a prayer of praise, a prayer of thanksgiving. That's an important aspect of our prayer lives. We ought to incorporate praise and thanksgiving. There are prayers of repentance and confession. When we blow it, we go before God and say, Lord, I've blown it, and I need you to restore me and create in me a clean heart, O God. We follow the pattern of David in Psalm 51 where he goes to the Lord and asks God to to cleanse his heart. And and prayers of repentance and confession are very important. they are prayers of supplication, which is a big word that simply means we ask God for things. Jesus invites us to come and ask the Father for things that we need, right? Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. He says, ask, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and the door will be open unto you. So we're invited to come to the Father and ask Him for things. The Father expects us to come to Him and ask for daily bread. So supplication is an important aspect of our prayer lives. But what Paul is talking about here is not praise and thanksgiving and not uh, repentance and confession, not supplication. Paul is talking about intercession. Another big word that simply means prayer for others. In this text, Paul's not praying for himself. He's praying for other people. Paul made intercessory prayer a top priority of his ministry. If you read the letters of Paul, you see he is constantly, continually, consistently praying for those he's writing to. Praying for others was a number one priority of his ministry. Now here's an interesting little tidbit. Paul... Had never met these folks. Remember, Epaphras, the church planner, probably got saved when Paul was ministering in Ephesus, and then Epaphras went from, Eph- from Eph- Ephesus to about a hundred mile on the hundred mile journey to Colossae. He rode into town, he preached the gospel, folks got saved, and now Epaphras had come to Rome to tell Paul how the church was doing. But Paul, as far as we know, had never met these believers in Colossae, and yet he is passionately, fervently. Praying for them. He says, I've not ceased to pray for you. I've, I've not stopped praying for you. I am praying for you. And so I want to ask you a question. Is intercessory prayer, praying for others, a top priority in your life? Because here's the deal. When God's people take intercessory prayer seriously, we can expect great results. I believe that we will see the activity and power of God in our midst in direct proportion to how much we pray for each other. you, You didn't hear what I just said. I just said that we will see God's activity and power in our midst in direct proportion to how much we pray for each other. Because God is not just a God of ends, He's a God of means. And God has ordained that He will move in and through us through the means of prayer. And so, we need to pray for each other. And I believe as we pray for each other, as we lift each other up, we will see God do great things. And so, learn from Paul's intensity. He doesn't just pray one time, Lord bless the Christians of Colossae. He's saying, I have not ceased to pray for you. I'm lifting you up to the throne of grace. I'm I'm lifting you up to the Father. I'm asking God to work and keep working in your midst. There's intensity here. And the intensity of his prayer indicates his desire to see God do something. For, for example, let's just say that two people, person A, person B, decided they're going to get in shape. I didn't use any names for this illustration because I didn't want anybody to get their feelings hurt. And that they're going to get in shape. So person A and person B both sign up for the gym. They show up at the gym, and they've both got, uh, you know, new workout outfits on and new shoes, and they're ready to go, and they've signed the dotted line. They're paying the monthly fee. You know how that goes. And they're, they're, they're doing all that. And, and person A says, all right, I'm ready to start a new chapter of my life. I'm ready to get in shape, a new lifestyle. They get down, do one sit-up, and say, ooh, I didn't like how that felt. And they say, I-, I need to take a break. And they go home for the day. That's person A. Person B gets down and starts with 50 sit-ups, turns over, does 50 push-ups. Then they run on the treadmill for 30 minutes. Now, if you look at person A and person B, based on the intensity of their workout, which would you say really cares about a lifestyle change? Person B, right? And I believe the intensity of our prayer indicates how much we really want to see God move in others. If we really care about others' spiritual condition, there will be a growing intensity, growing consistency in our prayer life where we will not cease to pray for others. So notice the intensity of his prayer. Secondly, I want you to notice the content of his prayer. What is he actually asking God to do in the lives of the Colossian Christians? Look what the Bible says there in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, here's the request, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So here's the one prayer request that drives this entire passage. He says, I'm asking that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's the content of his prayer. In other words, Paul here is praying for renewal of their minds. He's praying that their minds would be filled up with a knowledge of the will of God. Now what is meant here by the phrase God's will or His will? We use that phrase differently. Sometimes the Bible uses the phrase the will of God to speak of His sovereign will. In other words, what's going to happen because He's sovereign and has ordained it? God is working in the universe so that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's doing that right now. And when the dust settles on human history, that's what's going to happen because that's what God wants to happen. It's all about Him. It's all about His glory, right? That's His sovereign will. That's going to happen because He's the one in control. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one bringing history to that conclusion. That's the sovereign will of God. Another way we use the phrase the will of God is to speak of His particular will for our lives. That's how we most often use the phrase the will of God. Should I take this job? Should I go to this college? Should I marry this person? Should I take this promotion? Should I buy this house? That's the the particular will of God. And and, and that's another way that we use that phrase. But I don't believe that's what's in view here when he says that you may be filled with a knowledge of his will. I believe he's talking here of the moral will of God or the desire of God for our lives. The way God wants us to live. His commandments, his expectations for our lives. To show you an example of this, uh, hold your place but turn to Psalm 143. Psalm 143, verse 10, I want to show you a psalm of David. This gets, I believe, at what Paul is saying. Psalm 143, verse 10, David says, Teach me to do your will. So, Lord, help me understand what you've commanded me to do. Help me to understand your expectations for my life. Teach me to do it. Teach me to live in accordance with what you expect. That's what he means there. And that's the same way back in Colossians that Paul uses that phrase. So he's saying, I'm praying that your mind will be filled, filled with the knowledge of God's expectations for your life. So you can live in light of those expectations. I like what Peter O'Brien writes. He writes, God's will here in this passage is an understanding of what is spiritually important. Paul's saying, would you fill up their minds, Lord, so they understand what really matters. They understand the priorities they are to have in life. Father, fill up their mind with your will. So Paul prayed for renewal of their minds. And how does that process, mind renewal, how does it take place? Well, if you look in your notes, our minds are renewed as the Spirit of God illuminates, that means helps us to understand, illuminates and applies the Word of God to our lives. So as we as we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Bible, and the Holy Spirit helps us to apply the Bible to individual areas of our lives. That's the process of mind renewal. And that's what he means here, because look what he says in verse 9. I pray that you will be filled with the knowledge of His will, watch this, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So this wisdom and understanding is spiritual wisdom and understanding. It, it's wisdom and understanding that comes from the Spirit. So now I pray that you'll experience that mind renewal process, where the Spirit illuminates the Word of God and applies the Word of God to your life. Now the word wisdom is a, is a, a major theme in Scripture, and as we study studied Proverbs on Wednesday nights, you remember our definition of wisdom maybe we said that wisdom is insight into life given by god that we should acquire and apply in other words wisdom is not just head information it's head information that you want to live out that you want to apply to your life and so he says here i'm praying your mind will be filled with the knowledge of god's will and that you'll learn it so you can live it that's what he's saying you can live it out with spiritual wisdom And understanding. So he's speaking here of the renewal of the mind. And here's the deal. We should pray for this process to occur in ourselves and in others. You say, wait, I don't know how to pray for others. Pray for the renewal of their mind. Pray that their minds would be filled up with a growing knowledge of God's will and God's way. Wait, I don't know how to pray for myself. Pray. Pray. That your mind would be filled up with the knowledge of God's will and God's way so you can live according to it. Now, over in Romans 12, Paul speaks of this renewal process. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transform, in the Greek language, is where we get the word metamorphosis from. That's a cool word, isn't it? You know what metamorphosis is? The the example we always see from nature is a caterpillar that gets in a cocoon, and for a period of time comes out of the cocoon, and the caterpillar's now what? Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, even our little ones know that. Caterpillar becomes a butterfly, right? That's what happens. It's a metamorphosis. I mean, you, you, you don't get much different from a than a caterpillar turned into a butterfly. And Paul's saying, I pray you would experience that kind of mind renewal, that kind of mind transformation where you will be filled up with what God is all about. That's the content of the prayer. And so, listen to me. It's a quick word of application. I expect next week that this process is going to accelerate my life because you're praying it for your pastor. Right? I I hope that next week my mind is filled up in a new and a fresh way with the knowledge of God's will, that I have new spiritual wisdom and insight and understanding so that I can live in a way that honors the Lord. That, that's what I'm praying will happen in my life, but I think it's going to happen as you pray for me in an ever-increasing way, right? So if I don't see this happening next week, it's your fault. No pressure. No pressure. By the way, You get the kind of pastor you pray for. Mm-hmm. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the 19th century, he, he pastored a megachurch before megachurches were cool. He had all sorts of missions and church planning taking place from his church. Saw thousands and thousands come to faith in Christ. His sermons were published and sent all over the world and are still impacting lives today. And one day, Charles Spurgeon was asked by a reporter, how do, you explain all, how do you explain all this success? How do you explain all that God's doing through your church and how he's touching the world and using your sermons? And Spurgeon said, my people, pray for me. That's just a quick advertisement. Pray for your pastor, all right? Because you don't have a Charles Spurgeon. Pray for me, all right? <laughs> and so we see the intensity of the prayer. We see the, the content of the prayer. He's praying for renewal of their minds. But third and last, I want you to see the goal of the prayer, I want you to think about the why. Why is Paul praying for this to happen? And he tells us in this run-on sentence, if you will. Look what he says in verse 9. I've not ceased to pray that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that, that's a statement of purpose. Everybody see that little phrase there? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. So Paul's praying for their mind renewal, so that their life would honor the Lord. So their life would please God. Paul was passionate that their lives would reflect the goodness and power of Jesus. That's what he means when he says, I'm praying this would happen so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I'm praying that, that your life would change to such a degree that when people see your life, they see the Jesus in you. They see the difference that Jesus has made. That you'll be walking in a worthy way, and, and that, that's what this that, is. What this means: a transforming life pleases the Lord. In verse ten, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects." So the reason Paul was praying for them is so that their life would change and please God. That's why he was praying for them. That's the goal of his prayer. Now notice here, this, and this is an entire sermon in and of itself. But notice the connection between knowledge and lifestyle. Verse 9, I pray that you'll be filled with the knowledge of His will. Verse 10, so that the manner of your life, your walk, will please God. There's a direct correlation between what's happening in our minds and how it plays out in our lives. And if our, lives, or if our minds are filled up with a bunch of junk and a bunch of meaninglessness, why would we expect our lives to please the Lord? But if our minds are being constantly, increasingly filled up with the knowledge of the Lord and His ways and His word, we're being renewed by the Spirit, we can expect it's going to make a difference in our daily lives. But here's the question. Wade, what does a a worthy life look like? What does a pleasing life look like? How do I know if my life is pleasing to the Lord? How do I know if someone else's life is pleasing to the Lord? Is there any way to, to... to quantify that, is there any way to, to, to know what that looks like? Well, there is. And Paul here gives us, in this sentence, four participles. And these participles modify his desire. They, they show us what a, a pleasing life looks like. He's bam, 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 bam. So I want to walk you through these four participles to show you what a worthy life looks like. Number one, a person that is living a life worthy of the Lord is bearing fruit. That's the first participle, bearing fruit. Look what he says in verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Here's the first participle, bearing fruit in every good work. So wait, what does it mean to please the Lord? It means there's fruit coming from your life. Now what is fruit? Fruit simply speaks of good things, That come out of our lives that are done for the glory of Jesus. Here's my question. Is there any fruitfulness in your life? Do you see God bringing things out of your life? Doing things in your life so that you are doing things for the Lord. You are doing things for the glory of Christ. Here's the amazing thing about God. The Lord takes fallen people. And by the way, we're all fallen. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the Lord takes fallen people... Forgives them, praise the Lord, and then makes them fruitful. Isn't that amazing? Before you met Christ, your life was not pleasing to the Lord. Your life was dishonoring to the Lord. The Bible says you were an enemy of God. But when you met Christ, the Lord forgave you for all of that, and then the Lord began to change you. He began a process of of change so that now there are actually good things coming out of your life, things that honor God. It's called fruit. The Bible says that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And in in Ephesians 2.10 it says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has some things prepared for us to do. And if we're going to please the Lord, we're going to do those things. There's going to be fruit in our lives. So the first marker or characteristic of, of pleasing the Lord is, Is your life fruit bearing is your life bearing fruit are you doing some things for Jesus the second thing the second marker of a worthy life is that we are increasing in the knowledge of God a person that is living a life worthy of the Lord is increasing in the knowledge of God look in verse 10 he prays for their mind to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects Bearing fruit in every good work, here's the second participle, increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. One of the markers as to whether or not you're growing is is whether or not your mind, your thoughts are growing in your knowledge of God. Now I want to give you a quote by A.W. Tozer, and if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I want you to hone in on this quote. So if you've been tuning me out for the last 15 minutes, I want you to listen. And then after this, you can tune me out again. You ready? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what we think about God will directly influence our lives. If we have small thoughts of God, we'll live small lives. We have big thoughts of God, we'll want to live for his glory. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The more we know about God, the more we understand life and meaning and purpose. The more you grow in your understanding of the character and nature and attributes of God, the more life starts to make sense. You start to see life from the right perspective because you understand who God is and what God is all about and what God is doing in the world. The more you know about Him, the more life makes sense. And here's the next thing. Growing theology. By the way, the word theology just means the study of God. Growing theology, growth in the knowledge of God leads to passionate doxology. And the word doxology simply means praise, giving God glory, worship. So here's the deal. The more your mind is focused upon the Lord and growing in the knowledge of the Lord, the more passionate your worship for the Lord will be. Which could be troubling for some of us in this room, right? If your worship is passionless, maybe it's because you don't understand who God is. If you read the Bible... Every time you see someone come to a fresh understanding of who God is, there's instant worship. Usually, it's folks falling on their face. Every time God just reveals himself in a new and a fresh way, you see people getting on their face before the Lord. Passionate doxology. Passionate worship. So what does that say about passionless worship? What does that say about apathy and complacency? And boredom with the things of God. It means that we don't understand God. Because when you understand, when you, in a growing way, understand the character and nature of God, it will impact and influence your worship. So a person that is living a life worthy of the Lord is bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. But third, a person that is living a life worthy of the Lord is being strengthened. Being strengthened. Look at the third participle with me. Verse 11, he says, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. So one of the markers of a pleasing life is that we are being strengthened by God. There's evidence of God giving us the strength we need to live an honoring life, a God-honoring life. Now I want you to notice, first of all, the source of power. He says there in verse 11, strengthened with all power. Whose Power. According to his glorious might. So who does the power come from? Are you, Who's the power come from? God. And notice God has a limitless supply. He's all powerful. So he can give you all the power you need to live a life that honors him. He never runs out of power. He never gets tired. He never grows weary. He, has, he, he always has what you need when you need it. Amen? That's the so we are strengthened with power according to his might. His glorious might, and notice the the need of power. He says, strengthen with all power according to His glorious might for, for the purpose of the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So wait, why do I need God's power in my life? Because if you're going to live a consistent Christian life, if you're going to run the race with endurance, you've got to have God's help. You can't live The Christian life in your own strength. Listen to me. The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. It's not difficult. It's unattainable. In your own strength. Jesus said, apart from me, John 15, 5, you can do nothing. So why do we need God's power? Because God calls us to live lives of endurance, steadfastness, patience, where we are running the race consistently, day in, day out, living for the glory of Christ. You need God's power to live that kind of life. How many of you find your spiritual lives resemble a a roller coaster? You know, I'm up and things are good, then, well, I'm down, I'm down, then I'm up, and and then I'm down, and then I'm going around this curve, and, and, and your life is just chaotic, spiritually speaking. There's no consistency there because you're not running the race with endurance. You're not steadfast for the Lord. Your Monday looks a lot different than your Sunday. It's because you've got to have God's power to live out on Monday what we talk about on Sunday. Can I get an Amen. Paul says, one of the markers of a life that pleases the Lord is you'll be increasing in the power of God. You'll be strengthened by His power. Now, a little neat tidbit grammatically, that word there is, is, is the passive voice. The passive was used in the Greek language, to speak of an object being acted on by an outside force. So he's saying, you're the object. The outside force is the power of God. You need it. And when, when, when I see that power in your life, I know, Paul says, that you are living a life worthy of Jesus. Here's the fourth participle, and we'll be through. we have any English teachers this morning, they are having a ball with this sermon, aren't they? (laughs) A person that is living a life worthy of the Lord is bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened, but forth, giving thanks. The marker of a person that lives for the glory of Christ is that they are a person of gratitude. Look in verse 11. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Now watch this. Joyously giving thanks. I love that modifier. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. Wade, does my life please God? I don't know. Are you a person of gratitude? A person that honors God is a person that continually recognizes His goodness joyously giving thanks. And if you say, Wade, why should I be thankful? We don't have to go any further than this verse that we just read to see why we should be thankful. Paul says, giving thanks joyously to the Father. Here's the reason why we should be thankful. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, there, that's, that's an entire sermon, but I'm going to move through it, okay? I'm going I'm to do this in just a couple minutes. But that is a great, great verse. We're going to kind of dig in a little bit more next week when we get to verses Uh, 13 and 14. But he says there that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance. In other words, he's done everything necessary to make us a part of the family of God. If you look there in your notes, God the Father has himself provided, this is from Douglas Moo, what sinners need to, to be considered worthy to join the people of god god the father has himself provided what sinners need to be considered worthy to join the people of god so god's done everything necessary for you to become a child of god you're listen you're not automatically a child of god you can't make yourself a child of god there's only one way to be a child of god god's got to do something for you to qualify you because in your sin you're not qualified what does it mean that God qualified us? This word qualified speaks of acceptance, forgiveness, and a right standing before God. God provided forgiveness. God adopted you. And God took you out of one sphere, the kingdom of darkness, and brought you into the kingdom of light. Look what he says there. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now how did that happen? How do we become kingdom saints? Out of the darkness, into light. How did that happen? Look in verse that last phrase on your your notes. Our status as kingdom saints was made possible by the cross. You see, Jesus took on human flesh and came to this earth. And Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. And listen to me. When he was on that cross, here's what happened. He took all of your sin and all of my sin on himself. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. And then on that cross, the punishment we deserved because we were rebelled against God, that punishment was poured out upon Jesus in our place. God the Father punished God the Son so you would not have to be punished. So you could be forgiven and made a child of God and, and called out of the darkness into light. You could become a saint because Jesus paid it all on the cross. There's been a controversy as of late about the song in Christ alone we sang it this morning one of my favorite songs I believe it's one of the most powerful worship songs ever written certainly the most powerful in the 21st century and there's another denomination that was compiling a hymn book and the committee that that was in charge of compiling these hymns came to the song in Christ alone and they said we know it's a good song a lot of folks sing it But we don't want to put it in the hymn book unless we change one phrase. The phrase we sang this morning. On that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They want to change that phrase. They want to change it to, on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now does the cross speak of the love of God? Absolutely. But listen to me. You don't understand the cross until you understand the wrath of God. They wanted to remove any mention of the wrath of God from a song that the church would sing. But I'm so grateful that when they submitted that idea to the the songwriters, the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty, they said, no, don't change it. We meant it to be written like that. And so you know what they did? They didn't put it in their hymn book because it mentioned the wrath of God. But listen to me. On the cross, The wrath of God that we deserve was poured out upon Jesus. He paid it all. He was our propitiation. It's a biblical word. It's a biblical idea that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God so we could be forgiven. And that's what's at work here in this verse. God the Father qualified us to be kingdom saints. Saints in the light. How? How? Through the cross. That's what qualified us. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. And someone that is living a life worthy of the Lord gets that. And they will be characterized by this joyous gratitude. Where they just can't seem to get over the fact that God saved them. That God redeemed them. That in Christ they have been born again. That in Christ they've been adopted by God. Now they can call Him Father. Folks that that understand the cross just can't get over it, can they? There will be a joyous thanksgiving in their life. And that's the goal of the prayer. Paul says, I'm praying that you'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will so you can live a life that is worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. Here's what it means to please Him. It means that you are bearing fruit, you're increasing the knowledge of God, you're giving thanks, you're being strengthened by God. In other words, Paul had a goal for their lives. You know, if you don't have a target, you'll miss it every time. Amen? And Paul had a target for other Christians. He really wanted to see others grow in the grace and knowledge of God so that their lives would honor him. And shouldn't we want that for each other? Do you want that for me? Do you? I want that for you. So let's pray. Let's pray for each other. Let's pray this prayer. The next time you're stuck and you say, God bless Pastor Wade, and you don't know what to say next, you're at a loss for words, go to Colossians chapter 1. And just begin to pray that over my life. And by the way, while you're there, pray it for yourself. It's a good thing to pray for your own spiritual life journey